pray that you would meet him in the midst of what he's dealing with. I pray, Father, that he would be strengthened in his, his physical heart. As you have changed his spiritual heart, I pray, God, that you would do a work in his physical heart, that you would shore him up and strengthen him. And even as I said earlier, that he would see all the days that you have laid out before him. And so, Father, we just pray for a miraculous healing that would even amaze the doctors. But I do pray, nonetheless, Father, that you would give him peace in the midst of going through all that he is dealing with right now. I pray for his wife, Dee, and I pray for her ministry to her husband, God, that you would strengthen her. And, Father, that you would just be glorified in and through this family, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 51, starting at verse 1, and really what we'll start as, we'll start at the title because the titles of the Psalms are the inspired word of God. Now, mine, it says Psalm 51 in this particular version of the Bible. It says confession and forgiveness of sin. That was added by the publisher. But really, before the first verse is to the chief musician, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. It reads, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Well, last week, as we finished the Gospel of Mark, we finished with the cross and then the resurrection. Well, it's the cross and the resurrection that give us the sense to Psalm 51. We see King David, and we see his contrite heart, but also we got to see the heart of God, and we need to see the mercy of God here, because David, well, David is due judgment, but we know that God was so merciful and even gracious to him. Now, again, this is a great song of repentance. When I taught on repentance, I taught from this text quite a few years ago. Now, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, or at least the scriptures tell us, that Jesus came preaching a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I think sometimes we leave that out of the equation. We'll tell people they need to receive Jesus into their heart. We'll tell people that they need to come to Christ. But what the Bible says that Jesus said, there's got to be a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so there's got to be the acknowledgement of sin, but there also has to be the repentance. And we'll look at the elements of repentance as we look at David's heart. But again, it's a necessity because without that integral element, there's not going to be forgiveness. Now, in the Old Testament, it was all about the sacrifice that would cover sin. And covered sin would relieve to a degree of guilt and and so on. But nonetheless, we see God's attitude towards the sacrifice in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, is that people were sinning without immunity and they were just throwing a sacrifice upon the altar. And in those verses, God said, I've had enough of your mindless and heartless 
sacrifices. Because it's not a sacrifice that the Lord desires, it's the heart that the Lord desires. And it's the repentant heart that the Lord desires. And so that's what we're seeing a picture of here in Psalm 51. It's not so much David going to the temple to offer a sacrifice. I'm sure he did. But the point is, is that David is coming before the Lord in a very personal way, casting himself before God's mercy. Now, it's important to understand, when we went through the Psalms, there was just so much detail and so much richness in it. If you want to know the just of any of the Psalms, you can look at the first verse and the last verse, and you'll get an idea of that Psalm. And a lot of the Psalms are almost like they're connected together. In Psalm 50, the last part, it it moves in very seamlessly into Psalm 51. Psalm 50 is a call to those who say that they are right with God to check their hearts and to know that they are right in the sight of God. Psalm 50 is a call tonight for the church to present themselves before God for examination. Look at verses 22 and 23. It says, Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. And so what's the response? Well, if you go into chapter uh, Psalm 51, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. And so again, you see how that flows. And it's the richness of the Psalms. The Psalms were very personal. The Psalms were very intimate. It was a man, David, just as we are, somebody trying to do the best that he can in his relationship with the one who first loved him, but now he loves and he desires to please. But he's also a man of the flesh. He fails. He tries to do the best that he can, but he knows he cannot be perfect. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but Christ who lives within me. But this life I live in the flesh... I live in faith in the one who loves me and gave his life for me. So Paul wanted to please God. I've been crucified with Christ. My sins were upon that cross, but this life I live in the flesh, I still fell, but I live by it, or I live it by faith in the Son of God who I know loves me and gave his life for me. And so this judgment is not an end-time thing, but a spiritual checkup in the Word of God, something we've been referring to, looking at on Sunday mornings in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And we'll continue that theme even as we move into 2 Peter. But again, we need to constantly be making evaluations on our lives. Where am I in my Christian life? Where am I in the Lord? Because we see the harsh words towards Israel is because they didn't consider that. They became very arrogant based upon who they were. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they were the ones whom the Lord had the strongest words directed towards because they should have known. And there was to be no doubt whom it is that we are to stand before. Again, look at the beginning of of Psalm 50, the previous Psalm, the 51, how that starts, the mighty one, God the Lord. The mighty one, God the Lord. Lord, again, is all in uppercase. That means it's referring to the tetragrammatron Yahweh, how God referred to himself to Moses at the burning bush, I am. 
Now, there were many gods. People can make a god out of anything, but this is the mighty one. This is one who stand apart from all others. This is God who is. The others are gods, if you will, who aren't. Now, when sinful man stands before a holy God, as I pointed out so many times, you see the perfection of God. One day, we're all going to be in the presence of God, and we're going to see absolute perfection. But the problem with that, apart from Jesus Christ is, and even today in Christ, you, you look at the, the purity of the Lord, and, and I guess it all summed up in the holiness of God, you're going to see the imperfection of self. Now, when we're in heaven, God is going to look upon us, and well, he even does now, and sees Christ. We are going to be clothed in his righteousness then. But as we open up the word, and we see the holiness of God, we see the absolute purity of God, we'll see the fallibility of man as well. We'll see the places that we fall short. Now again, God does this so that, well, we don't tend to tuck away our sin, but it's out there and it's revealed because revealed sin is always dealt with sin. It was a contrast that we saw in John chapter 9 with the Jews and the blind men. The Jews thought they were perfect spiritually, but they were blinded to reality. The blind man saw his imperfections and was made spiritually aware because he recognized these things. We're told in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 17, this is the vomit church. This is the one that Jesus said he was going to vomit out. And why? Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. The idea is I have no real need of prayer, the word of repentance, of worship, and, and the Lord says to this church, and do you not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? It's their arrogance that had blinded them to the reality of who they are. It's the idea of, I raised a hand, I walked down an aisle, I received Jesus into my heart, but there's no real change, and you go on living the life that you lived before. And again, I have no need of nothing, because I made that decision so many years ago but no, you, you're, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked, and on top of all of that, you're deceived. The Sun Star, a newspaper, I don't know where, reported on December 10th that an unnamed man was taken to a hospital, okay, Modesto, California, after his head was split open by a brick. Police called the scene, called to the scene, were expecting to find foul play, but witnesses said the man was merely trying to see how high up he could throw a brick. And since it was dark, about 2.30 a.m., the man lost track of the brick's flight and could not get out of the way when it came down on his head. Police said alcohol appeared to be involved. And so this man, and you're laughing, and I laughed too, and that was the intent of this, because how foolish it is. If you throw a brick up in the air, don't try and catch it. And just my advice to you tonight, if you get nothing out of this study, if you throw a brick up in the air, don't try to catch it with your head. But there is a brick coming, and we have to acknowledge the danger that we're in, or a train coming down the track, or we're hanging over the ledge of a cliff. Whatever it might be, the idea is, is to get out of the way. The problem is the world is drunk with the world and the things of the world, and they're not willing to get out of the way. So to know God's goodness and grace and mercy, there must first be the knowledge of sin. It's when we have the opportunity to lead people to the Lord. Again, one of the best ways, way of the master, 
if you were to die today, where would you go? And I guarantee you the majority of the people either say, well, I don't believe in him. And you can even kind of lead them around. Well, if you believed in heaven, where would you go? They'd say, well, I would go to heaven. And you ask them why. And they would say, because I am a good person. Now we say, we know that the Bible says none are good, no, not one. And so then you lead them through their sinful history. God gave us 10 commandments to do so, and it's real easy to do so. Have you ever stole? Have you ever told a lie? So on and so forth. And that what happens is people come to awareness of their sinful nature. If you were to stand before a holy God today, would you be judged guilty or innocent? And again, even if they don't believe in God, they come to the realization because of their sense of justice that God has created them with, I would be judged guilty. And so then there's an opportunity to show them a way out. And so in order, though, to even know sin, you have to first know God because God sets the standards of what sin is. And if I don't know God, I'm not going to know sin. And if we are not sinners, you have to understand, you have to ask yourself at least, Who is God to you? If you don't believe that you're a sinner, if somebody doesn't believe that they're a sinner, well, then who is God to them? Creator, yeah, but that's about it. Because he's not Savior. And and, and if you're perfect in, in all of your ways, why would you even truly need a holy God? And so I must know God, but the problem is if I know God, then I'm going to know sin. And if I'm going to know sin, then I'm going to know my condition. And then what happens? Well, then I'm going to know God, and I'm going to know God as judge. And that's going to be a hard thing to deal with. And so what am I going to do? Without the knowledge of the grace and mercy, really, of Psalm 51 in the light of Psalm 50, I'm going to be just like Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes, or like David, David who hid his sin and thought that he did so successfully for quite a while. But again, God will not allow us to live in unrepented sin. It's the conviction of the Spirit within our lives. So what is to be done? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 12 is the revelation of David's sin. This is the sin that was committed with Bathsheba. If you don't know the situation, David saw this woman Bathsheba on a roof taking a bath problem is he was already married and so was she he had sent Uriah the Hittite her husband off into the battlefield he got together with her she became pregnant long story short he had him murdered and then took this woman to himself and so he thinks everything is okay chapter 12 then the Lord sent Nathan to David now keep in mind who Nathan is he's a prophet this is the word of God going to David And then the Lord sent Nathan, or his word, to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him with his children, and ate his own food, and drank from his own cup, and laid in his bosom. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man and said to Nathan, so again, his sense of justice, as the Lord lives, that man who has done this shall surely die and he shall restore fourfold to the lamb, uh, for the lamb because he did this thing because he had no pity. Then, David, then Nathan said to David, and I can imagine Nathan kind of getting his face and looking him in the eye. Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And this is going to be the first step of restoration, although repercussions are still going to be there, the things prophesied. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion of the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. I can imagine... It's one thing to receive a judgment, a sentence. It's quite another to have somebody else to have to pay. And I think that pain was probably worse than anything else. And so really what we have coming back to Psalm 51 is the means by which we approach God with our sin. Because the only way that sin is able to be dealt with is for a person to humble themselves, is to understand the sinner they are, and is to approach a holy yet merciful God. In tonight's psalm, King David comes to God with adultery, and he comes to God with murder and all the guilt that goes along with it. That being the case, what is it that, you know, David was able to come to God with adultery and murder and and receive mercy and even receive grace. What is it that we keep from God? What is it that we keep from acknowledging to the Lord? What is it that we keep hidden as David did? Because, again, it wasn't dealt with in all this time, and it it ended up bringing misery into his home. Never did David have peace in his family after that. And so we have to come to the realization that, hey, if God can forgive adultery and murder, he's able to forgive what it is, the sin that I possess. And the sin that I possess, I must release to God. And just keep this in mind as well. In the Old Testament, there was no sacrifice for adultery, and there was no sacrifice for murder. The offending party was to be put to death. And so King David realizes before the sight of God that he is worthy of death. That's why Nathan the prophet said that he would not die. So we're going to look at this psalm, Psalm 51. We're going to look at it in six ways in which a sinner is to approach God in order to deal with his sin. Tonight, we're only going to get through two of them, and we'll finish next week. So again, verses 1 and 2. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. The sinner approaches God, as I said before, simply based upon the mercy of God. Mercy means you are not going to get what you deserve. 
And so if I'm approaching somebody greater than I am, and I have offended them, and if I think I'm going to get judgment, I probably avoid them or even flee from them. But if I know I will not get what I deserve, then the relationship has the opportunity to be mended. And the relationship always has the opportunity to be mended, but if I'm hiding in the bushes, covering myself with fig leaves, whatever it might be, then I'm not taking that step of, of repentance. I've acknowledged sin, but just simply to acknowledge sin and leave it at that doesn't do any good whatsoever. You need to take the next step. You need to approach God. There has to be that real repentance. And so to approach God based upon justice, to approach God based upon what's fair, to approach God based upon what you deserve is to get what you deserve is to receive judgment from God. Now, Paul pointed out in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, or do you despise the riches of his, of God's uh, goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? Not knowing that the goodness or the mercy of God leads you to repentance. We know that if we approach Jesus in a repentant state, then we'll receive mercy. We will not get what we deserve. But if we are to receive judgment, we don't come before the Lord. If we're afraid of God, if we bought into how tradition has presented God as being somebody who is mad and being ready to judge, we don't come before him. Again, we flee from him. We ignore him or we run away. And the problem with the unbeliever is the unbeliever doesn't know God, and so the unbeliever avoids God. And how is he going to know God? How is he going to understand grace and mercy? As we put on Christ, as we reflect Christ, as they see the change in our lives, as they see the change in our attitudes, as they see the change in our disposition, they'll see the reflection of Christ from us into their lives. And it's that, hey, if God can forgive you, or if that's a result of somebody that knows Jesus, that's going to break down that fear barrier. And that's going to open the door for their coming to Christ, for their repenting. In these two verses, there are three ways that the psalmist asked God to deal with his sin. First, he asked that God would blot out his transgression. A transgression is willfully stepping over the line. As David was looking down upon this woman, he knew that that was sin. He knew that if he was to have a relationship with her, that would be adultery. That would be, well, there's probably quite a few there. And anyway, he decided to do it anyway. And so sin is willfully stepping over the line. But then he had this great guilt that was before him because... Her husband was there. If I can just get rid of the husband, because sin always leads to sin if you don't deal with it. And then when he made the decision to murder, probably didn't really look at it that way. I'm sure he did what we'll all do when we're contemplating sin. He lied to himself because it's a battle. Uriah the Hittite was out at battle, and he just sent the messenger to tell Joab, when you're in the heat of the battle, just pull all the troops away from Uriah the Hittite and allow him to be hit with the arrows, and that's what he did. But... That was murder. He had this man's life in his hand. He had a responsibility, and he caused the man to be killed. And so he willfully stepped over the line of adultery, willfully stepped over the line of murder. It's kind of like, well, you ask yourself, why would he do this? 
Well, the very same reason when you ask a child who did something that is just utter disobedience, you know, why, and I don't know why we ask our children this, why did you do that? I mean, if you ask me why I've done half the stuff that I've done, I don't really know either. And he asks the child, and that'll be his response. I don't know. I told you not to do it. Why did you do it? I don't know. Well, he's not lying. What is he doing? He's just acting according to his nature. Because sinners beget sinners. Look at Genesis chapter 5. And as sinners beget sinners, he's got the same nature I have. Doesn't relieve him of guilt, but it is a reality that exists in all of our lives. Again, David knew that murder and adultery were sin, and he knew that the penalty was death. David, why did you do that? I don't know. So this transgression, this willful sin, he wants God to blot it out. To blot it out means to remove from a book used for a reminder. Lord, blot out your remembrance of this sin. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 12 through 13, God says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And so with that repentance comes a forgiveness, and that forgiveness is total, and that forgiveness is complete. Secondly, he asked God, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Iniquity, it's perversion and we see how deep it really goes, really building upon what I just said as far as the sinful nature of man. If you look down at verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth, or I was born in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. It doesn't mean that his mother was off you know, fornicating or something like that. He's speaking again of the sinful nature. And I was a sinner within the womb, and I was brought forth in sin. Lord, I need a washing. He desires to be thoroughly washed so that his nature will be changed into something clean. And that's the concept that we'll use in the Bible. Remember blood, we'll talk about the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus Christ just signifies his death, but we'll say, Lord, wash me clean by your blood. And the idea is is that your sacrifice would completely change the person that I am. Lord, you need to make me and only you can make me just as if I have never sinned. And Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 speaks of this concept. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have been passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You've become that new person, down to the core of who you are. You still deal with sin. We live in this fallen world. There's no doubt about it. But again, God has worked this great change from his perspective to your life. He looks at you just as he looks as his son. And then thirdly, David asked God, cleanse me from my sin. Keep in mind that these are not demands. These are pleas before a holy God. Cleanse me from my sin. His sin is that which misses the mark. In our, 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 sin, our, our sin is wanting to live a holy life. It's wanting to be perfect in the sight of God, but it's impossible for us to do so because I'll constantly see that goal of perfection, Jesus Christ, but I'll constantly just, just miss, just miss by, by just a little. I'll, I'll, I'll try to cut that straight path, but from time to time I'll wander off and then sometimes I'll just make a complete right turn or about face and transgress. But again, sin just simply misses, means missing the mark. 
If you want to hit the bullseye, you'll be able to hit the bullseye. But if you want to be perfect, you've got to hit the bullseye every time. If you just miss the mark by a little bit, then you've sinned. A Christian who tries but isn't perfect. And we saw this example as far as cleanse me from my sin. And we studied the book of Exodus. I'm not going to turn there. But in Exodus chapter 30, we saw the laver. And you would have the priest. He would enter in and there would be the altar there. The priest is representing the people to God and God to the people. Before he's able to approach a holy God, the priest would have to make a sacrifice for himself. And so he'd make that sacrifice for himself. And before he could go into the holies, into the tabernacle, he would also need to wash himself in the laver. Now, the, the, the altar, the altar where the sacrifice is a picture of the cross. We have come to the cross of Christ. We saw that last couple of weeks in the Gospel of Mark. We saw the reality of it last week as we closed with the resurrection. It's there. It's there that we are forgiven. But as we go through this life, we get soiled. None of us, again, are perfect. We're soiled, and we need that washing. And that washing is, washing is the washing that comes about by the Word of God. The Word of God is that which washes me clean. So I encourage you daily, get into the Word of God. Get on the Bible bus, read your one-year Bible, whatever it might be, just be in the Word of God because it's that which cleanses my soul. That way I'm able to enter into the Holy of Holies and entreat my God for all that this life has to offer. James chapter 4, verse 8, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So that cleansing, that cleansing comes through God's Word. Verses 3 through 6, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward part, inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. <clears throat> This is the confession of the sinner. This is coming before God. He says, I acknowledge my transgression. Again, I pointed this out at the beginning. It's the doctrine both Jesus and John the Baptist brought repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's that which the apostle John picked up on, if you will, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, and that's huge. The biggest word in the Bible is if. If. That means you have the opportunity but it's your, up to you to make the decision to do so if we confess our sins. And, and really, the sins that I confess, I remember when I was Catholic, went to the, was going to have our first communion in, I think, in second grade, and part of that was going to the confessional, and you'd have to go to the confessional, and you were expected to tell the priest your sins. And I'm just thinking, my gosh, I'll be there for days. I mean, how can I possibly remember all the... So, I would kind of go in there and sin. I would actually lie to the man. I would make sins up because I wanted to have something to tell him. It's not that I didn't have, you know, sins to, that I've committed, but who in the world remembers them all? And so if you confess our sins, it's just the whole ball of wax. If I confess the sinner that I am, if I confess the idea here is, is all of my sins, or maybe even better than that would be our sinful nature. If we do that, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll cleanse you from everything. You'll be perfectly pure in the sight of God. 
again, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see here are three keys to confession. In verse 3 again, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. David acknowledges that he has sinned, that he has done wrong, that he has sinned in the sight of God. It's why he has been under tremendous guilt. It's why he has felt so far from God, and it's why he is in the situation that he is. Again, you can imagine the shock when Nathan the prophet pointed at him, or at least turned to him and says, that man is you. The man that has upset you and has defiled your sense of justice to such a degree that you're willing to kill him, that's you. You're that guy. And again, we have to remember that because... If we're not receptive of the sinner into the body of Christ, I'm talking about the unbeliever, then he's going to perish in his sins. And the thing about it is, you were no different than that person. The abortionist, the, the homosexual, whatever it is, as far as the top nine, the dirty dozen, whatever you think is the worst of everything, you were just seen as bad in the sight of God apart from Jesus Christ. And God brought you in And we need to be welcoming to anybody, no matter what they are doing or what they have done. Now, it's up to them to come to Christ. We're not going to allow people to infect the body of Christ, but they must be able to be brought in to hear the word of God and have this opportunity. Because really, that's what God gave David with Nathan. He gave him an opportunity to release. Well, again, in sin, we carry that tremendous guilt. We know that we have sinned. We know that we're apart from God, and we know that something has to happen. Well, this repentance, it releases us from guilt. That's why Paul said that we had peace, peace in God, because Paul was this man who had no peace. He was breathing threats towards the church on the road to Damascus. And you think, Paul, what's the big deal here? Relax a little bit. But no, he, he, was, he was thought he was doing God's work. But what was he doing in actuality? He was trying to deal with his guilt. Because he knew that to be a Pharisee is to be perfect, and he's not perfect. And that imperfection had to just eat him up inside. And so he's lashing outward, and I really believe it's from, well, it's from sin, but the guilt until Christ arrested his soul. It's why we feel so far from God. How many times have you felt, man, I just feel so far from God lately? Well, the question is, who moved? God says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And it's the times that we've sinned, that we've moved away from God. Why am I in this horrible situation? Probably because you walked into it. You got yourself into it somehow, some way. And so David realizes the repercussions he feels are repercussions from sin. If I believe myself to be sin-free, then I would never repent. But these are good things. Guilt has its place. The feeling of farness or separation from God, the situations in our life, they're to get our attention to bring us to the place before a holy God that we need to be. Again, verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. He just flat out acknowledges his sin and takes possession of it. He knows it's not a sickness. He knows it's not a sinful condition is a condition, but he understands that he is responsible. He's culpable for this. A sickness, well, a sickness would mean that it's not our fault, that it can be healed with time, or it can be endured. 
If sickness, then not a sin, but if not sin, then not my fault. But sin, sin is laid at the doorstep of our responsibility. It's that which we need to embrace, we need to acknowledge, and we need to deal with. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He confesses that sin comes from a sinner, and a sinner not from sin. We sin because we're sinners. I didn't become a sinner because I've sinned. Again, it's part of my nature. In Titus chapter 1, we are told that God cannot lie. Could God lie if he wanted to? I mean, he's God. No, he can't because it's contrary to his nature. God cannot sin. We cannot but sin. It's our nature. There's a story of a fable, whatever. There's this flood that's coming up, and there's this scorpion, and there's this turtle. And they're there on this island, and the water keeps rising and rising, and the scorpion looks and sees the other side and asks the turtle if he'll give him a ride to the other side. And the turtle says, no, you'll sting me. I'll become paralyzed, and we're both going to perish. And the scorpion says, I promise I won't do that. And Why would I do that anyway? Because I'm going to die too. And the turtle thinks it over and says, okay, climb on. So he climbs on, and he's paddling. They're about halfway through, and the scorpion stings him. And the turtle becomes paralyzed with the poison. He starts to sink. And before he sinks, he goes, why did you do that? Now we're both going to die. And the scorpion said, I don't know. It's just my nature. The scorpion was just doing what scorpions do. Sinners just do what sinners do. The scorpion was going to suffer the repercussions of what he does, of his nature. We will suffer the repercussions of our nature as well. And there's got to be that change. And again, that change only comes from the Lord. Verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. The inward parts is where all godliness and ungodliness springs forth. It's our thoughts, or our intent of our thoughts. It's what we'll call our heart. A heart is the depths of the inner man. And as I've said so many times, that deep place is the place that only God knows and only I know. I'll try to bury things in there, but sooner or later, they will be revealed. And my heart is the motivation behind everything that I do here at church and how I conduct myself out in the world. He says, you desire truth in the hidden parts. He wants that truth to sink down deep, to do that work within us. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom, that I would be receptive of God's word, God's will, and God's ways so that that change would be able to achieve its purpose. Got sin? Approach God according to his mercy? Acknowledge your sin. Next week we'll see to appeal for a cleansing, to desire a renewal, and to promise to guide others, or at least that need to guide others, and a prayer for the prosperity of God's kingdom. But as for us tonight, we must understand, we must realize, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And the implied question would be, well, why did he do that? Well, for God, verse 17, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. And here's the key. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name or the nature and essence of the only beloved Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That light, now, the condemnation isn't 
that you send, but the condemnation, look what he says here, and this is the condemnation, this is what's going to condemn those of the world, that the light, that Christ has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Well, the problem was they committed these evil deeds, and now there's light that has come into the world. There's God, but they don't know God, and so they're hiding in the darkness. And they're not going to come out of the darkness because they're afraid of God. And today, that darkness would be their ignorance, the ignorance of their minds, of their beliefs, of their heart. And they'll hide within there because if they don't, then they have to come out, and then they're going to have to deal with this, but they don't understand or know who God is. Verse 20, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deed should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God, that our deeds would be clearly seen by the Lord. And that which is of him, that, well, he'll have that attitude of well done, good and faithful servant. That which is not of him, well, those who have cast their cares upon Christ, those who have acknowledged their sin and repented of their sin, he doesn't even look upon those things. They're going to have an effect on our lives, sure, but as far as salvation, God chooses to see us just as if we have never sinned. Father, once again, we just thank you for the depths of our salvation. And I pray, Father, as a people, we would understand really what that means. It's not to be something that is to be taken lightly, It's not to be something that is taken for granted, but God, we would understand the cost of of what, the reality of the cost of what was necessary, Lord, to wash us clean. And so, Father, we just thank you for this psalm. I pray as we examine our hearts that truly, Father, we would realize the glory of your grace and your mercy. I also pray, Father, for those who who hear this and, and don't understand these things, that, God, they would come to the realization of that which they do understand, their sinful nature, the absolute purity of a holy God, but the graciousness and mercy of a holy God that desires to see people, sinners, saved. And so, Lord, it's the essence of what the Scripture is all about. We just thank you for this evening, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You can go ahead and stand, please. I'll turn the heat off when I get down there. (laughs) Um, Sean mentioned it at the beginning of service. If you have ever had any biblical questions that you want answered, um, I'm going to devote a service to that. I don't know what service I'm going to devote to it just yet. But if you do, in the bulletin, there's the line section for taking notes. Just write your question there and put it in the agape box. And I'll take a a service or two services, whatever is necessary. I only have a couple of questions right now. If that's all I end up with, I'll probably just answer them before our regular services and then get into our Bible studies. But again, if there's just anything there that you've ever wanted to know, just write it down. If you're watching on Facebook, you can type it out there or send a, uh, a message to us, and we'll include them in the rest of the questions. God bless you guys. Have a pleasant rest of the week. Amen. As we close with this last song, it's a a response of what we've heard in the scriptures as Pastor laid it out of mercy and forgiveness. So this is a response of what we've heard and what God did in your life tonight. So lay down your burdens, lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. O wanderer, come home. You're not too far. Lay down your hurt, lay down your heart. Come as you are.
come out of sadness from wherever you've been. Come broken hearted, let rescue begin. Come find your mercy, O sinner, come kneel. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. So lay down your burden. Lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your There's hope for the hopeless, for those who stray. Take what key are you in? <laughs> Just tell me what capo you're in. There's hope for the hopeless, for all those who stray. Sit at the table and come taste the grace. There's rest for the weary, rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can cure. So lay down your burdens, lay down your shame. joy for the morning, O sinner, be still. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal.
And Father God, tonight we do just come as we are, Father, for we we come before you broken, and it's not that we come all cleaned up and have our life all together. We come before you, Lord, and ask, Lord, as, as King David did tonight, Lord, just, Lord, blot out our transgression. So, Father, we praise you for your mercy and grace. And all God's people said, amen. amen.